Dear Heavenly Father, God, I do thank you for this evening, and I thank you for having an understanding family who, uh, who supports one another. And God, I just uh, give this evening to you. God, have your way in this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we are going to start uh, just by reflecting on a couple of things that Larry said. What is Hebrews? Who is Hebrews written to? And uh, yeah, we can say the easy answer is to the Hebrew people, Hebrews. Um, uh, the little more in-depth answer to that would be these are Hebrews who uh, at this moment in time are being discouraged. They're uh, being persecuted and therefore being tempted to go back and live life the way that they used to. They want to live life according to the law according to the Old Testament. And this uh, writer of Hebrews who uh, we don't really know who it is. A lot of people think that it's Paul. Some people think it's just a, uh, maybe a, a student or a disciple of Paul. It very much sounds like Paul. So that's, uh, that's you know, I, I don't want to give Paul the credit if it's not him, but it does sound a lot like him. So um, he, at any rate, he gives uh, a lot of uh, edification. And throughout the whole course of Hebrews, he just wants to make comparisons to the superiority of Jesus Christ in the new covenant. And he does that by making comparisons to a lot of other things uh, within the first uh, eight chapters. Chapters one and two, uh, he compares uh, the supremacy of Jesus in the new covenant through angels, uh, from angels in the Torah. Chapters three and four, he compares them to Moses in the promised land. Chapters five through seven, from priest Melchizedek, and we are going to talk about Melchizedek here in just a, a few minutes. And then chapters 8 through 10, sacrifices and the old covenant. And then all throughout that, he's got sprinkled some warnings, and he uses a lot of scripture from the Old Testament, which is good for us to hold on to and cling to, because whenever we are trying to encourage people who are discouraged, uh, it's good to go back to scripture and use scripture for that. So, we are going to start tonight in chapter 7. If you are not already there, you could turn there. Uh, it opens up with Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is an interesting and mysterious character in the Old Testament. I don't know how many of us can remember Melchizedek uh, offhand. Uh, this is a story when Abraham has gone to go and rescue Lot and Lot's family, and it was a big success, and on the way back, uh, he runs into this king, the king of Salem, Melchizedek. Interesting thing about Melchizedek, many people think that this is what they call a Christophany. Uh, this would be a picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And there are some good reasons that we think that. Uh, number one, Melchizedek. His name means literally uh, king of righteousness. And so Abraham runs into Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, who is at this time the king of Salem. Salem is uh, interpreted as peace. So here, Abraham runs into the king of righteousness and the king of peace. The other interesting thing about Melchizedek is that he uh, has no recorded mother, no recorded father, no recorded genealogy, no recorded birth, and no recorded death. He is a complete enigma and through all this, Abraham comes to him and recognizes that there is something great about Melchizedek. So great, in fact, that he tithes to Melchizedek. He, tithe, he gives a tenth of everything that he has to Melchizedek. Now, 
The interesting th part about this is when we give tithes, uh, especially when we're referring to like Old Testament, we're talking about, um, you know, giving, uh, it's always giving from, from the lesser to the greater. So in the, in the tabernacle, when you've got the Levitical priests, they're always receiving the tithes, right? The interesting thing that uh, the Hebrew uh, writer points out here is that um, there were no Levitical priests at that time because Levi hasn't been born. Levi is still kind of in the loins of Abraham, right? And so what he does is he says, yes, the lesser always gives to the greater. Now, it does get a little confusing, and it took me a little bit to kind of dig into this a little, okay? So when you're reading about tithes and stuff uh, in the first part of this chapter, it's, it's like it got to me a little bit. I was like, I have no idea what this means. Suffice it to say, if people are giving tithes to the Levitical priests, the Levitical priests have already given tithes to somebody greater through Abraham, okay? Because what he is saying is uh, Levi, in the sense, was in Abraham's genes, okay? And so since he was there with Abraham, the Levi line has also given a tithe to Melchizedek, someone who Abraham recognizes as greater than himself, okay? So that's, in a nutshell, that's probably the best way that I can really explain this, okay? And I'm sure Scott and somebody can do a much better job than I did, uh, but suffice it to say, what he is saying, the, he, the writer of Hebrews, is that there is somebody greater than the, the, uh, than the Levitical line here. So um, if we look at uh, verse 11 there, it says, therefore, uh, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? So why did I just give you this big, long history thing about Melchizedek? Because it's mentioned, right? And the way that it's mentioned is that the fact that there is uh, no perfection in the Levitical uh, priesthood, even though they received the law through it, you cannot be perfected by it. No matter how hard they tried, no matter how an many animals that they would sacrifice, there is no perfection in this. But there is something greater. And we could see this in verse 15. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Now, Christ was not born into a Levitical priesthood. Like many of those priests were, it's like, hey, you're in the line of Levi. Guess what? You're a priest, not Jesus. That's why they call him from the order of Melchizedek and the likeness of Melchizedek. So he's comparing Jesus to Melchizedek in this way, that he is, in fact, greater than the Levitical line. Uh, Christ wasn't born into priesthood. Like those who were born in the Levitical line, rather he was more like Melchizedek, which was prophesied in Psalm 10, and the writer has the wisdom to quote it. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, continuing to compare the supremacy of Christ against the law, verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So, we've already said that the Levitical 
uh, priesthood could not, could not make one perfect. But Christ has made a way for us to be seen as perfect, right? Now, we can all stand here and say, I'm not perfect, but Christ has made a way for us to be seen as perfect. So, uh, the supremacy of Christ to other priests. This one is kind of simple. They die, but Christ lives. Verse 23 Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is supreme against all other priests. Moving on to chapter 8. Chapter 8 begins with bringing together the main point of chapter 7, which states, now this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Now, interestingly, he is seated at the right hand in heaven. The Old Testament tabernacle had no place to sit. Why? Because the priest's job was never done. Uh, from morning till night, they're killing you know, bulls and doves and whatever and splitting thing, animals in half and burning heifers. And, and then they got to find time to pray on top of that as well. Uh, and it was, I mean, I mean we've been through uh, the, the law books and we know how many animals, like it had to be a whole lot, right? There's no way that they could get a job done. But Christ, Christ is seated at the right hand in heaven. Why? Because Christ's job is finished. His work is finished. Here again, we see the supremacy of Christ's work to the Levitical line. They are never finished. He is. The superiority of the new covenant. Now, here's the deal. God found fault with the old covenant. All right, Not that he found fault with the covenant in itself, but the fact that men were weak and incapable of reaching such a high standard. So, uh, that's why the Old Covenant was given to us in the first place. It wasn't to make us perfect. It wasn't to, uh, I don't know, honestly, I don't even know if it was really to draw us any closer to the Lord, but it was just to show us how weak and how incapable we are to meet that high standard. Verse 10 says, uh, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This new covenant is supreme to the old one. Why? Because this new covenant features a greater intimacy with God I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Moving on to chapter 9. 
the earthly sanctuary versus the heavenly sanctuary. The earthly sanctuary is just a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary, and we see that in chapter 8, actually, verse 5. Gifts and sacrifices couldn't even make the high priest perfect, much less the ones he was offering them up for. If we look at uh, verse 9 of chapter 9, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. However, Christ's offering was perfect, cleansing each one of us. It continues verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So we're talking about death. And, you know, a lot of people, if if you're an unbeliever, you kind of go, why does there need to be uh, death of anything anyway? Why does God have to use death to make some kind of covenant? Well, and, and we know that uh, death is a, necessary, is a necessary thing that we need for the testaments. If you have a will and testament, that will isn't enacted until uh, the person who holds it dies. And so it, when we look at the Old Testament, what we recognize is that there had to be many deaths many sacrifices, many times. But the new covenant that we are currently under was one sacrifice, one time for all time. Chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 23. Discouragement made uh, the Hebrew people, they made them waver from the truth. Uh, many times if we get discouraged, we will also start believing in deception, right? We may start believing in lies. Uh, If we fall or if we make a mistake, then we are very quickly told that we're not good enough, right? Or that God doesn't love us. So we need uh, to be uh, reminded we need to be reminded of the supremacy of Christ and the supremacy of his covenant and not to be uh, distracted from the truth. But these people were discouragement and made them waver from the truth. And a renewed confidence in the greatness of Jesus and the new covenant will make them stand strong in the faith. And this is one reason that we go to church is when we are discouraged then we can be amongst people who will remind us of the supremacy of God. And if we are not doing that here in this church, then we're doing something wrong. If somebody is coming to us 
saying, I'm really discouraged or I'm going through something really hard right now, our job is not to fix it for them. Our job is to point them to Christ. Why? Because he's supreme over any thought that we have, right? So we point people to Christ, and that's why we come to church, to be encouraged through the word, to be encouraged and have other people remind us. We need those reminders. So 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. I'm going to pause right there because he keeps, re- he keeps using this word, our hope. And, and anytime that I hear those terms, like our hope, in reference to uh, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, I have to just... I'm just reminded of Romans 5, right? Because this is a hope that does not disappoint. And, and that, like, I have to cling to that because uh, otherwise I'm clinging on to a lie. So the confession of our hope that does not disappoint without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I know that there's a lot of people, I know a lot of people who are discouraged, and because they are discouraged, they will not come to church. And they can use excuses Right? Oh, there's just a bunch of hypocrites in a church. Eh, you know, they're, honestly, they're not too far off anyway, but, but they, they'll use those as an excuse, right? The real reason is, that is sometimes we just feel too bad. Maybe we don't want to be convicted. Maybe we don't want to. Um, maybe we don't want to be encouraged. It's a lot easier to dwell in, in self-pity and wallow in this despair. Uh, but that's exactly when we need the church and the word the most. In verses 37 and 38, the writer quotes Habakkuk 2.4, which is repeated three times in the New Testament. And we've always heard here that if uh, any scripture is repeated even twice, then we know that the Lord wants us to pay attention to it. But this particular scripture is quoted three times. And this is another way that we also know that the word is active and living because each of those three times, there is a different word that is emphasized Okay, so in Romans 1.17, Paul quotes the same passage from Habakkuk 2.4 with the emphasis on faith. The just shall live by faith. In Galatians 3.11, he quotes it with the emphasis on just. The just shall live by faith. But here, here in Hebrews 10.38, the emphasis is on live. The just shall live by faith, right? The old way, the law, our sin, when we want to go back into sin or when we want to go back into the law, it just leads to death. We are being encouraged to live by faith. <laughs> leads to life. When we are discouraged, it is good to have a reminder of God's superiority along with examples of people who lived by faith. This brings us to chapter 11. By faith we understand. And he starts, he starts by defining faith. What does faith mean? Now faith is 
the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith is needed for the things we can't see or touch. It does not contradict reason, though it may go beyond earthly reason. Example, it is perfectly reasonable for Abraham to believe that Sarah cannot have a child in her old age. That's a reasonable thought. I think all of us here would kind of go, too old to have a baby. That's reasonable. But faith calls us to go beyond reason, to understand that the God who created everything, just spoke everything into being, can create life out of an old lady's womb. That's faith. It goes beyond reason. And with that information, we should never have the words, I'll believe it when I see it in our vernacular, right? We say, I, I don't have the faith for that, but never I'll believe it when I see it. And Christ is the only one that we can have complete faith in because he's never given us a reason not to have faith in him. Even the leadership here at the church, okay, even the leadership here, even the people that we trust, we can't have complete faith in. Why? Because the leadership here at the church will tell you something like, hey, Sunday morning at 10 o'clock in the morning, we're going to have church service. Very rarely if ever, have we actually started at 10 o'clock in the morning, right? It's always 10, 10, 10, 15. If somebody came to me and said, we have church at 10 o'clock in the morning, I don't have faith that that's going to happen, right? It's not going to happen. I don't have faith. But when Christ says something, when Christ makes a promise, it always will come true. He is a man of his word. He is a God of his word. So he is the only one that we can have complete faith in. Now, faith is not a bare belief or an intellectual understanding, but it is a willingness to trust in, to rely on, and to cling to. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's not without faith, it is difficult to please God. It's not without faith, it is challenging to please God. Without faith, it is impossible. One must believe that he is and a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Chapter 11 is a, a list of those who died in the faith. They had a promise of a Messiah, uh, and though they, they didn't see because it was afar off. Now, we are people who are fortunate enough to look back and know what the Messiah has already done. We've received the Messiah, so we have even more of a reason for patience, for endurance. Faith is a spiritual muscle. Uh, how do we exercise? If we don't exercise our faith, then what happens? Comes like every other muscle if we don't exercise it. Becomes weak, all right? We must exercise our faith. How do we do that? Some practical steps to exercising our faith. 
patience. Patience is a huge exercise. Joseph, Joseph practiced some extreme patience while he was here on earth, but even more in death. You see, God promised to take his people into the Holy Land, and Joseph leaned on that promise, and he believed it wholeheartedly, so much so that when he died, he instructed his people to uh, take his bones with them whenever they left to go to the Promised Land. And Joseph's bones remained unburied for 400 years. That is extreme faith in extreme practice of patience. And that's, uh, that's Joseph. We can uh, exercise faith through obedience. Joshua and the people that he led uh, walked around Jericho for seven days. And it seems weird because usually when you fight a city, you're not doing it by just walking around and maybe yelling at the people and and blowing some horns at the end of that. Usually you're going to attack. But they were told to walk around it for seven days. And they had to, they had to be uh, obedient because uh, when they started their journey, uh, the river that they crossed was, was, it was in the flood stages. So once they started, there's no running away. They had to kind of continue with it, right? But it was, and, and they knew that, and it was an act of obedience that exercised their faith. And then finally, worship. Worship is a practical exercise of faith. Jacob had to lean on the top of his staff in his old age because he was given a limp many years before when God confronted him. And as he leaned on his staff, he remembered that God was great and God held his future and the future of his descendants. Therefore, he worshiped, leaning on his staff, demonstrating his faith and his dependence on God. So when we exercise our faith, we do it through patience, we do it through obedience, and we do it through worship. And at the end of 11, he, the writer of Hebrews, basically says, dude, there are too many examples to list. And I've even only listed three of the ones that he did list. There's many more that uh, he said, there's just too many. So we move on to chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this cloud of witnesses he's referring to is all those people of faith that he just mentioned. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In those two verses, there is so many talking points right? There is so many gold nuggets to dig down and find, and I can't go through them all tonight. But there is one 
that I always want to bring out every time I read this and every time I talk to people about this, there is one nugget of truth that I want to exclaim. You have to understand that you are the joy that was set before Him. He suffered and died for you. The joy that was set before Him. He didn't get on the cross for, uh, because his daddy told him to. You know, he, he didn't, I mean, he did it out of obedience, but he saw through the anguish that he was going through. Why? Because the joy that was set before him so far outweighed everything else at that point in time. And that joy is you. That joy is me. And I have to remember that myself sometimes. So if, if I am the joy that was set before him, why then, why then do I go through hard times? Why then does it seem like I suffer? Why then, do, and the Hebrews are asking, why are we being persecuted? If, if, if he loves us so much, and if, he, if, if, if we are the joy that's set before him, why is this happening? What's going on? Verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges. Every son whom he receives. So here's the deal. Sometimes we need training. Sometimes we need molding. Sometimes we need to be chipped away at. Uh, a fellow and I were just talking about this yesterday, actually. And uh, he, was, he was talking to me about all the changes that he saw in me from uh, probably very early on in our relationship until now. And granted, if I were to take a look back and kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's who I was, and it's a little bit embarrassing <laughs> to right now, um, a person who has changed a whole lot. But even in that, I can tell you that I've, I've experienced change even within the past seven months, even within the past two weeks that there have been changes that have affected my life, that have affected my family's life. Because God is always working. God is always doing something. And sometimes that doesn't feel good at the time. But there is no one so good that you don't need to be trained. And sometimes when we go through those things, it's just training for us to grow, to be the people that God's creating us to be. Or there's another possibility. Uh, sometimes we go through hard things because later on somebody else is going to go through those hard things. And now we have walked through that and God's allowed us to walk through that so we can share our experiences. Because what did we just say about uh, faith? It is good to exercise it, but it's good to have examples, Right? Examples to look through. So sometimes it's just for our own edification, for our own training, and sometimes it's so that we have the tools to help other people. So he calls us to take action. Verse 12, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight the paths for your feet, 
so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So he's telling these Hebrews and telling us, are you discouraged? Take heart. Straighten up. Uh, I tell my kids, man up. I think that God would be like, Christian up, <laughs> all right? Straighten up. Walk straight and pursue peace, both with man and with God. Holiness. 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the words should, should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better, than, better things than that of Abel. So here, we're back to comparisons. Old covenant versus new covenant. Only this time we're using geography to do so. We're talking about Mount Sinai versus Mount Zion. There's a lot of comparisons being made here. And I'm only going to list like four, I think. See, Mount Sinai is associated with the fear of the people. People were afraid. They were terrified. Even Moses was trembling. There was fear in the people, so much so that they ended up worshiping a golden calf of their own creation. So much fear versus Mount Zion, where Jerusalem, the city of peace, sits. Fear versus peace. Anytime you talk about Mount Sinai, you're associating it with Egypt. We know that, uh, you know, if we were to uh, use uh, similes and metaphors, Egypt is a picture of the world, right? So it's, it's, a, it's an old way. It's Egypt, slavery, beatings. Ugh. Mount Zion is associated with heaven where everyone's free and free indeed. Mount Sinai is associated with the old covenant. Moses goes up in his fear and trembling uh, and, and brings down tablets. These are rules and regulations that say, uh, you want to be good, good enough for me, which you can't do. You have to earn it and deserve it. Versus Mount Zion, which is a new covenant in which all we have to do is believe and receive. There's no work here. Mount Sinai is associated with exclusion. Only one person's allowed to go up on the mountain. Everybody else has to stay away. There's fences built around. Even uh, the animals will be stoned, killed, and shot, right? Versus Mount Zion, an invitation. 
Come unto me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Beautiful, beautiful comparisons. Chapter 13. Instructions for body life. So he's made all these comparisons and, and said, hey, guess what? This way is better than the old way. Believe it. Receive it. And continue in strength. Can continue doing this. Here's some instructions for you to continue. Continue to love one another. This word for love is phileo, the brotherly love. Uh, be hospitable. Something that uh, Eastern, I'm learning, Eastern culture is all about. They're very proud of being hospitable. Remember the prisoners. Now, this may be one of the first uh, allusions to uh, people being imprisoned for the sake of the gospel right? So it, it, it may be that time it says, hey, just remember them as if you were chained up with them. Remember those prisoners. Honor marriage. Marriage was under attack then. It's very under attack now. Be content. Whatever we have or don't have, God is with us. So be content and remember spiritual leaders. We're kind of living we're seeing a lot of spiritual leaders fall. And it's important that the church has godly leaders. And, I, I, and I'm, I'm glad to say that this church has a godly leader. But it's just as important for followers to be godly as well. Instructions for worship. Remember who God is. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Remember who he is. Remember what he has done and why he's done it for the joy set before him. Remember, remember, and respond. You respond in praise. Verse 15, therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Praise that pleases God is offered by him, that is by Jesus Christ, on the grounds of his righteousness and pleasing God. Praise that pleases God is offered continually so that we are always praising him. And praise that pleases God is a sacrifice of praise in that it may be costly or inconvenient or sometimes we just don't want to. It's still important that we offer that even if it is a sacrifice to us. And finally, praise that pleases God is the fruit of our lips. It's more than just thoughts directed toward God. It is spoken unto the Lord either in word or in song. What proceeds from the lips is regarded as fruit, which reveals the character of its source as the fruit of a tree reveals the nature of the tree. Husbands, imagine if your wives never heard the words, I love you. Well, she should know. I mean, what do I do? I go to work. I provide for her. She has want for nothing. She knows that I love her. Not true. 
Your wife needs to know, she needs to hear those words, I love you. Wives. Husbands want to hear, good job, right? They want to hear, job well done. You know, I mean, we even talk about it in the context of church. When we get to heaven, what do we want to hear? Well done now, good and faithful servant. That's what men want to hear. Good job. You know, it's not what we just want to, you know, sometimes we just go and fix something or or do something and then stand back and hope, (laughs) hope that not only will she notice, but uh, she'll tell me what a good job I did, right? We want that. It's needed, so wives, don't, don't neglect to tell your husbands good job. Husbands, don't neglect to tell your wives, I love you. But let us all remember that God wants to hear those things too. It's not just thoughts that we can just throw up. You know, we can throw them up, but our lips are important. What does he say? The fruit of our lips giving thanks to him. We all want to hear thank you. So does he. Lord, I love you. You are an amazing God and you are far superior to that that we have ever known. I love you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I do. I thank you for this evening. I thank you uh, for the opportunity to get to share your word. And God, just for the passion that it stokes up into us. God, for these reminders of your superiority. And God, how even when we want to drift back into our old lives or the old way we used to do things, that you are constantly reminding us of your superiority and how you are deserving of our worship. God, we love you. Let us never forsake telling you how much we love you. God, we thank you so much. God, just go with us as we go on our way. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.